Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from January 30th by Pastor Randy titled, Nehemiah, Build Back Your Faith, Part 3. All right, so what we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. Because we've been looking at the revival that happened under Nehemiah to encourage our own. And what I have said as we've been going through this is that I don't want you to just see what happened in these chapters. I want you to see what's behind what was happening in these chapters. In chapter 1, we saw Nehemiah, he spends four and a half months praying and fasting. What was behind that? It was this desperation that was behind that. It's got to have something happen. I can't live like this anymore. There has to be a breakthrough somewhere. And it was his desperation that led to his prayer and fasting. And we talked about that desperation last week. But as I stopped and thought, and that's what was illustrated with the kids' sermon here today, when they asked what is fasting, no, I have no idea what that is. And I know we have talked about that. and We have been involved in that for years in this church. So I just assumed, okay, everybody knows. I say, let's pray and fast. Everybody's on board with that. But I realize we also have some new people, and sometimes you guys forget some things. So what I want to do today, we're going to get to chapter 2, but for the first few minutes before we get to chapter 2, I just want to talk about fasting for a few minutes. So what is fasting? Fasting is not just going out, going without food. That's dieting. Okay. Here's your definition of fasting. Fasting is giving up the craving of the body, usually food, in order to gain a need of the spirit. Fasting is saying no to you in order to hear yes from God. Fasting recognizes that as demanding as need of, as food is for my body, I have needs that are more demanding than that. As, as, as demanding as the need to have food, I am much more than a machine that just needs gas. I don't just need food to fuel my body. I'm more than a machine that just needs gas. That's what fasting recognizes. Jesus put it this way. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. John Wesley, he put it this way. He said, a, a man who never fasts is, never more, is no more in the way of heaven than the man who never prays. He would not even ordain anybody in the ministry that didn't fast. So, why is it that we have a difficult time with this? Because the question for us is not, should we fast? The question is, will we fast? As I gave you the question a couple weeks ago, how could something so clearly taught, modeled, and commanded in Scripture be so neglected today? Let me give you two reasons why that is. Number one, fa fasting is really practiced because people don't understand its power. I've given this illustration before as we talked about fasting. Imagine a little kernel of unpopped popcorn. Inside every little kernel of unpopped popcorn is just a little bit of moisture. And when that moisture heats up, boom, there's an explosion. And you didn't realize all that stuff was in that little kernel of unpopped popcorn. And when you fast, God heats up our spirit and our spirit bursts through our flesh. And we didn't know there was so much God inside of there. Let's put it another way. Fasting brings breakthroughs in the spiritual realm that will not occur any other way. 
We just don't understand his power. Secondly, another reason why we neglect fasting is that we cherish the comfort of our bodies more than anything. The heart of being a disciple is denying yourself. Saying no to yourself. That's the heart of a disciple, being willing to deny himself. In other words, there's the times you're just going to have to say no to ourselves. But we don't want to deny ourselves anything in our culture today, especially food. But what fasting does, it says, look, my CEO is not my stomach. That's not what's in charge of me. God's in charge of me. Listen to this verse in, uh, out of Job. He says, I have not departed from the commands from his lips. I have treasured the words from his mouth more than my daily food. Job is saying, I desire to hear from God more than the food. I we don't think like that. We just don't think that way. Because we don't want to deny ourselves anything that we think we need, we have to have. Here's what we read. Uh, this is in Philippians. For I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. We don't associate food with idolatry, but God does. We just don't want to say no to ourselves. It's hard for us to do. But why is fasting so valuable? First of all, fasting is valuable because it conditions me to say no to other appetites. It helps me to say no to other things. So often, we'll, we'll feel the nudging of the Spirit to, to go do something, to, to do ministry or something like that, you know, to, to get up and, and, and maybe just read the Bible and pray or something like that. We feel the nudging of the Spirit, and our flesh will step up and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to watch TV. We're going to play computer games. So many people get involved in sin and get stuck in sin because they've never had a discipline to say no to the flesh. And what I want you to understand is that fasting exercises those same muscles that allow me to live by my convictions rather than self-gratification. So those same muscles you've got to have to say no to the flesh when it comes to temptation are the same muscles that you're exercising when you fast. Secondly, fasting is valuable because it brings, it brings breaks or breakthroughs, breaks through the bondages in our lives. Here's out of Isaiah. Isn't this the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Because sometimes we get these walls built up in our lives that, 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 that keep us away from God, these, these walls of, of addiction and all sorts of bad behaviors and destructions and, and bad thinking. And, and fasting helps break those down. And sometimes fasting helps build the walls that need to be built up in our lives. To break those bondages. Third thing, fasting is valuable because it brings us closer to God. People 
A lot of times we'll stand in long lines for something that they really want to see and do. They'll stand in long lines to wait and see a celebrity or a sports star or something like that. They'll wait in long lines for a ride of an amusement park. You know how bad somebody wants it by how inconvenienced they're willing to be. You know how bad somebody wants to be close to God by how inconvenienced they're willing to be. See, the question you have to ask yourself, are you willing to fast and pray to get closer to God? Because that's what fasting does. It brings us closer to God. Think of it this way. Fasting helps us see things from God's point of view. Gives us a clear picture of him and his kingdom. It's a difference between looking at the stars from a telescope off your back porch and looking at it through the Hubble telescope or what's soon to be the James Webb telescope that's, that's going to be active in another month or so. I can't wait to see the pictures that come through that thing. Looking forward to it. So, what I'm wanting you to do is to Make a plan to fast over the next couple of months while we're going through Nehemiah. You're going to have to decide what that's going to be for you. Are you going to fast for a couple of weeks? Are you going to fast for a couple of days? Are you going to fast one day a week? Are you going to fast one meal a day? You have to decide what that's going to look like to you. Now, if you're in a place in life where you're physically unable to fast because it's going to hurt your body physically. It's not spiritually smart to do something that's physically stupid. That's fine. Fast something else. Fast from TV. Fast from social media. By the way, it's not fasting from TV if you record it to watch it later. You realize that, right? Okay. It's going to cost. It always costs to have revival. It will cost you to fast and pray. But I don't want you to ask yourself, what is it going to cost me to fast and pray? I want you to ask yourself, what is it going to cost me if I don't fast and pray? Look at it from a completely different viewpoint. Okay. Now let's move on to chapter 2. What you're going to do is you're going to sit down and you're going to think about this today. For the next couple of months while we're in this, what's my plan in fasting and praying? All right? Because if you don't make a plan, it's not going to happen. You have to plan, this is what I'm going to do. Now, chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with a timestamp. Chapter 2 begins the month of Nisan. Now, Nisan, it's a month, not a car, Okay? <laughs> When all this begins with Nehemiah, it begins in the month of Kislev. That's in the wintertime. That's when Hanukkah takes place. So now we've moved up to the springtime when we get to chapter 2. We're about four and a half months later. So Nehemiah, he's been praying and fasting for four and a half months. Let's just call it four months. How long did it take to rebuild the wall? Anybody know? How long? Do what? 52 days. So let's say two months. So he spends four months preparing for 
Two months of work. Here's what you need to know. Prayer and fasting doesn't erase planning and strategy. It just makes things flow easier. Let me give you an example. When I got out of high school, well, actually, two years before I got out of high school, I was already done with school. Okay. I didn't want any more. In fact, I would leave school, well, I, just not legally, legally, not illegally. Well, yeah, I, I did do that a lot of... I did leave school a whole lot when I wasn't supposed to. I guess my kids are grown and gone, so it's okay. It's not going to hurt them now to know how much I actually did not go to school when I was supposed to go to school. Uh, so that happened uh, a lot. But anyway, I couldn't wait to get out of school. Didn't want any more of it. But when I got out of school, God had different plans. He wanted me to go to college. So I went six years to college. After six years of college, God had different plans for me just going off. He had plans to go to seminary. Now, you see, this is from a guy who couldn't wait to get out of high school. I wanted to, to work full time, start my own business, get all that done. Didn't happen. Six years of college, six years of seminary. And I'm going through seminary and going, okay, God, if you want me to some type of ministry, let me just get in ministry. Why do I have to go through all this seminary stuff? And I can tell you this, when I stand up and do what I do, you're not hearing anything that I learned in seminary. And what I mean by that, don't, don't take this the wrong way, is that, is that I didn't learn sermons to preach in seminary. But every day I'm in the office, I am standing on a foundation of those 12 years I spent preparing. Those 12 years I spent preparing helps me to do easier, more naturally, and without falling into ditches that other people fall into. Every day. Because that foundation was laid. Jesus prepared for 30 years for three years of ministry. Okay? So here, the preparation of prayer and fasting makes you more productive. You get prepared. It's going to help. All right, so now, Nehemiah's been preparing for four and a half months. And now, everything's about to change. So here, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you are sick? Uh, when, you are, when you aren't sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear. So for four and a half months, Nehemiah has been broken over the state of Jerusalem and his people. This has been so burdened to him. He's been so desperate about this. He's been praying and fasting this whole time. But yet, he, he never let on in the presence of the king. Because it could cost you your life to be sad before the king. That's why it says here, I was overwhelmed with fear. Remember in the book of Esther, she's saying, when she would even appear before the king without being summoned, if I perish, I perish. See, you did not want to appear sad before the king because that meant that your agenda was more important than his agenda. 
And never was your agenda to be more important than the king's agenda. So he's afraid for his life. And then it says in verse 3, and he replied to the king, May the king live forever, which is a good thing to say if you think you're about to lose your head. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. What I want you to know, when he first answers the king, he doesn't mention anything about Jerusalem. Because years earlier, the king had issued a decree that Jerusalem was not to be rebuilt because it was a city of rebellion, a rebellious city. Just leave it there in ruins. So now, Nehemiah is going to the king and saying, Can you reverse that edict that you made back a few years ago? So you see the tension that's going on here? That's why he's. He's talking to one king and praying to another. So what do you call that? When you go before the king, when you're sad, when that's the last thing you should do is be sad in his presence, and you go before him, not only are you sad, but you ask him to reverse deeds that he would made a few years earlier. What do you call that? Stupidity? Risk? Boldness? One thing it is is an act of faith. See, there are different types of faith. Sometimes there's resting faith. Sometimes there's waiting faith. And sometimes there's risking faith. And this is that risking faith. This could cost him his job. It could cost him his life. The king could take his anger on the city of Jerusalem and go out and just wipe it out even more and do it again. If you're ever going to experience revival, it will require faith. You can't come from a broken state and come back healed again before God without faith. Faith has to be there. It's never going to happen if God's people on an individual level and a corporate level don't express faith in God. Don't move in an act of faith. It's just just never going to happen. The next verse. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city's wall, the home where I live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of God was upon me. All right, so Nehemiah goes from asking permission of the king to to rebuild something he said that should never be rebuilt to asking for protection and letters. And supplies. The first thing I want you to see here, what this means is during that four and a half months, he wasn't just praying, he was also planning. He was counting on God being able to carry out what was in his heart. See, faith postures itself ready for God to move. 
we're quick to pray about things, but often we're not quick to be ready to do something when God answers our prayer. And so what does Nehemiah say at the end? He says, and the king granted my request. And then he says, because the gracious hand of the king was upon me? No, the gracious hand of God was upon me. In basketball, by the way, nice win for Kentucky yesterday. But in basketball, they keep stats. On the guy, you score a point, they keep a stat on that. But they also keep a stat on assist. The person who gets a stat, gets a point, or gets a line in his mark for assist, he doesn't score. What he does, he puts the ball in such a position that it makes it easy for another player to score. That's why in the NBA or college, when somebody scores, you often see, look at the player who provide the assist, and they'll, they'll give them a nod, they'll give them a point to them, or give them a high five or something like that. Anytime something is accomplished in the Christian life, it's either because God scored the points or else he provided the assist. See, Nehemiah recognizes all this, it's not happening because he knows how to play the king. It's not happening because he's such a good and a smart person. It's happening because the reason he scored is because God provided the assist. The gracious hand of my God was upon me. Next verse. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. Now, what does this verse have to do with the price of tomatoes? What does it have to do with this? Nehemiah, he didn't ask for a guard escort and horsemen. He didn't ask for that. Remember that verse we talked about two weeks ago, but God can do above abundantly more than you ask or think? You know God's in it. When you ask for A and you get B and C. You know God's in it when you ask for a little bit and you get so much more. It's like Eddie. He prays for a wife and he gets Jenny. There you go. All right. I was waiting. Eddie used to play shortstop, right? Third base or shortstop? Which was it? All right, so, so when the pitcher pitches, you just lodge one over there. You're supposed to, it's one of those balls that, you know, you can hit it anywhere in the field you want to because it's just coming so slow across the plate. And you say, I'm just going to stick this over the fence. That was an opportunity for you to hit it over the fence. All you had to do in a much louder voice, much sooner, go, amen, See, and, and you hit it over the fence. But that's what our God does for us, right? That's what you see him do all throughout Scripture. This is, this is Jacob leaves his home. And when he leaves his home, he prays, God, just give me food and clothes. That's all I want. But when he comes back to Bethel, he's got thousands of sheep and camels and all this wealth. Much more, exceedingly more than he could ask or think. 
Whenever they, they, raise, they lower that paralyzed man down before Jesus, Jesus forgives his sin. He didn't come to have his sins forgiven. He came to be healed. But now he gets much more than he could ask or think. He gets his sins forgiven. Jesus on the cross, the thief says, remember me. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. The prodigal son, he comes back. He just wants to be a hired servant. But no, bring the ring, the robe, the shoes. That's what our God is able to do. Much more than we could even ask or think. Above all that. Next verse. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night, took a few men, uh, few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. Let me back up. Let's just take this part right here. I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, it wasn't Nehemiah's plan. This was God's plan. This is something God had laid on his heart. Revival for us is not Randy's vision. It's God's vision. It's what he has laid on my heart. I'm just trying to be a good steward of that vision and get you to be a part of it. And then after this happens, it says Nehemiah, he didn't tell anybody what was going on. He didn't tell anybody about rebuilding the wall or anything yet. Hasn't said a word about it. And then he takes a couple of guys with him at night. And they go around by a horse to sort of observe and see, get a layout of what all's how bad the situation is. In fact, it even says later on that, that as they're trying to make their way around the city, it's so bad the horses can't get through. He has to get off and climb over all the junk. But then he says this at the end, and we'll hit this next week before we get into chapter 3 next week. He gets in and says, but our God will grant us success. So here's what I want you to see. First of all, nothing is too messy with God. Nothing's too messy for God to work. Your marriage is broken, not too messy for God. You got addictions going on, not too messy for God. You got other issues, not too messy for God. Nothing is too messy for God. No walls too broken. No grave is too sealed. Nehemiah has confidence in what God is able to do. He said, our God will, will grant us success at the end of chapter 2. So here's what I want you to understand. So we're going through Nehemiah, and we're just not looking at what's happened. We're looking at what was behind what happened. We saw in chapter 1, behind his fasting and praying was desperation. And what I want you to see today, what's behind Nehemiah willing to risk his life to go before the king and be sad in his presence, what's behind Nehemiah saying, our God will grant us success, is faith. He has faith in what God can do. He takes a risk in going to see the king. 
He proclaims our God will give us success. What's behind that is faith. Because sometimes faith, like I said before, sometimes it's a waiting faith. Sometimes it's just a resting faith. Sometimes it's a risking faith. What you need to understand is that time to time, God's going to give you a nudge in your spirit, in your life. Something he, he's wanting you to do. Something he's wanting you to pursue. It's not something you make up, okay? This has to come from God. It's not like, oh, I need a new car. God, give me a new car. You know, it's, it's not like that. But you, you have this nudge from God's spirit. And, and when you respond to that, when you say, okay, God, I'm trusting you in this. Whenever your faith intersects God's faithfulness, that's a moment you don't forget. Whenever you see God come from, come. Whenever you see God show up in your life as a response to your faith, you remember that. God, I trusted you, and God came through. That's something that, that you'll talk about years later, and when you even talk about years later, you'll still be emotional about it. But when you have those times when God nudges you, maybe it's to give, maybe it's to forgive, maybe it's to... To, to do this, go here, or don't do that, whatever it may be, and you don't respond to those nudges, your faith grows cold and stale. You'll read in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You go, yeah, heard that one before. Daniel and the lion's den. You go, oh, yeah, know all about that. Your, your faith will become... Stale like that. Here's the thing I want you to understand. What makes a person strong in faith is not what they know, it's what they experience. That's why Jesus didn't say, hey, you disciples, take notes. No, he said, follow me. Come and experience this. Faith will play out in your life and change your life through your experience with God. If you ignore this, you'll become cynical as a Christian. You'll complain about stuff that doesn't matter. Your faith will just shrivel up and die. When my younger son was still at home, we were down in his bedroom one day. We were playing Mario Kart. So this has been a long time ago. There, sitting next to the TV, was a fish bowl. We had three goldfish in it. And so we're playing. And my son, he's very good at this. You know, I'm focusing on everything, just on what's on the screen. You know, he can look at he can, he can still beat me one-handed and still focus on everything else. Anyway, he says, Dad, look at the fish. So he pauses the game, and we look at the fish in the fish bowl. One of them is belly up. One of them is just darting back and forth. I mean, just, you know, goldfish can move that fast. He's just darting back and forth. The other one is jumping up out of the water. I mean, getting three, four, five inches up out of the water and plopping back in. He gets up. He puts his hand in the water. He goes, the water's warm. And Lisa had been down there cleaning while we were playing, and she had changed the water in the goldfish bowl and inadvertently put 
warm water in it. So I grabbed a fishbowl. I go up to the, the sink, you know, and run some cooler water, pour the fish in it. And it was touch and go for a while, but they all three finally made it. The simple moral of that, moral of that story is warm water is not an environment for fish. They don't live very well. Little goldfish don't live well in warm water. And what I want you to understand is that Christians will shrivel up and die in an environment of unbelief. We weren't made to live in unbelief. We were made for faith. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, 6 says, without faith, it's impossible. What's impossible? Anything in the Christian life is not possible. Nothing has nothing to do with faith. The Bible says we live by faith, walk by faith, Stand by faith. By faith, overcome the world. So how do you know that you live by faith? How do you know? Real simple. Number one, nothing reveals more clearly if you live by faith than how you respond to trials of life. When you're being tempted, when you're going through different trials, let's say the trial is temptation. Do you say, bless his man who endures temptation for when he's tried, he shall receive a, a crown of righteousness? Do you, do you live by the fact that no temptation is it's going to ever be too much for you? What if, what if you overcome with guilt? Do you live by the promise that there is no more condemnation? Do you... Difficult situations come, are you able to wait upon God, knowing that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength? How you respond to different trials and crises reveals whether or not you have by faith. The second thing, if you want to know you live by faith, is if you attach Jesus' name to it, does it sound right? I hate them in Jesus' name. I'm addicted in Jesus' name. I'll never be able to conquer this in Jesus' name. Does that sound right to you? But how about, you know, I love them anyway in Jesus' name. It's my pleasure to forgive them in Jesus' name. I can conquer this in Jesus' name. That shows whether or not you're living by faith. In a small town, there was this contested race for councilmen. And the guy who lost put this little ad in the newspaper the next day. First line, I want to thank the 100 people that signed a, position to put my, signed a petition to put my name on a ballot. Second line, I want to thank the 432 people who said they would vote for me. Third line, I don't think the 212 people who said they did vote for me. The fourth line, I don't think the 47 people who actually voted for me. The point is this, a lot of people, a lot of Christians say they live by faith. But when the rubber meets the road, do they really? Do they really live by faith? How do you know if a person's living by faith? Surrender. Is there any surrender? Let me explain. Back after 1990, after Berlin Wall fell, 
It's a famous pastor. Maybe you might remember him, Adrian Rogers. He was doing a revival with Joseph Tung. He's a preacher from Romania. And Adrian asked Joseph, what's your impression of American Christianity? And Joseph said, when I think of American Christianity, the word that comes to mind is commitment. Then he said, you know, whenever you have a word that's used to describe something, it's usually because it's pushed out another word. And the word commitment, the word that it pushed out was surrender. What's the difference between commitment and surrender? Well, commitment, when you commit to something, you're still in control. You can commit to pray. You can commit to read your Bible. You can commit to losing weight. But you're still in control because at any time you can decommit from those things. But surrender, that's different. It's what Jeremy has illustrated as we were singing. Somebody comes up behind you with a gun, you put your hands up. And you don't talk to him about what you're committed to. You just do whatever you're told. You surrender. In God's kingdom, what I want you to understand is that surrender is what brings the victory. Surrender is where the peace is. Surrender is where the joy is. Stop fooling yourself and saying you have faith if you don't have any surrender. Here's the thing. We've been over this before. There's a big difference between believing God and believing in God. Big difference between those two. That's part of my testimony. Growing up, I believed in God. You go to any... Homeless person drunk on the street, they believe in God. But it wasn't until later on in life when I began to believe God, to believe that what he said about marriage was true, to believe what he said about money was true, to believe what he said about relationships was true. You see, a lot of people believe in God, but they don't believe God. When you believe God, you base your life upon what you say you believe. And it wasn't until my later teen years where I began to base my, base my life on what I said I believed. I spent a lot of years believing in God, but not believing God. See, we have a lot of ruin around us, a lot of broken walls. And Jesus wants to rebuild but we have to have a faith that is fueled by surrender. If we're not broken, if we're not desperate for it, it's not going to happen. If we don't have faith, if we're not willing to step out and, and, and to have a risking faith, a, a resting faith, a, a, a waiting faith, it's not going to happen. It's where it begins. So let me ask you, in context of what we talked about today, do you believe in God or do you believe God? Which one's true of your life? Are you ready to stand on that foundation where you believe God and your life reflects what you say you believe? That there's faith there. Because when the trials come, 
When the difficulties come, that shows whether or not you live by faith or not. So what is it in your life? Don't fool yourself into thinking that, yeah, I've got faith, I believe, but there's no surrender. So now's the time where you can surrender. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.